Uh, but thank you for, for joining us for, um, for this, this experience, this time together. And, and we're, we're especially glad if, if you are visiting us from, uh, from another congregation or if you, you don't have a church home and are here just to, uh, to see what this is about and to, to hear Dr. Beck, then we're, we're glad and, and honored that you have, uh, have chosen to, to join us for this time. Uh, as we've been telling our, our congregation, we've, we've been, been very much looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a rich experience and, and uh, are glad that you have, have joined us for it. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming if you're here that, that you've, you've seen many of our emails and promotions that had all of Dr. Beck's uh, bio and, and all that type of information. So I'm assuming if you showed up here on a Saturday, you probably know something about the topic or are interested in hearing him in some way. So I won't spend just a whole lot of time introducing him, but I will say that um, I, was, I was at ACU from 2002 to 2006, and upon leaving uh, and entering ministry, I, I, I got to hear some of the professors in speaking roles at conferences and things that I didn't hear while I was there, and I realized there were, there were really two professors that I really wished I had taken classes from while I was there that I never did. Uh, Randy Harris was one of them. I, I never took a class from Randy, and I, I wished I had once I left and heard him, and, and Dr. Beck was the other one. that I, I've, I've had the privilege of hearing him at a, a few conferences now uh, in ministry, and, and I thought, man, I, I wish I had uh, had the foresight to take one of his classes while I was at ACU. Uh, and so I've been blessed by hearing him speak in other places, and it's been good to get to know him just a little bit in, in preparation for, uh, for this event. And so uh, we're, we're excited uh, to, to hear what he has to share with us. We think it has relevance for, for us as people and in our culture and, and looking forward to what he has to share. Uh, okay, I, I, I said in, in the emails about registration that I was going to have some door prizes, some of Dr. Beck's books. Uh, available for, for those who registered early, and so I have that. I'm going to do two of them now. I've got three of his books. We're going to do two now, and then we'll do one when we come back before the second session. Uh, so uh, I've got all the names in this basket here, and so I don't want to be assumed as showing favoritism or anything. So Carol, will you, uh, will you pull one of those names out? If it's, if it's your name, yeah, then... then. Brittany Hindman. Brittany Hindman. Is Brittany here? You have to be present to win. So, no? Okay. Well, so that's, that's why we're doing one after lunch. So I know some people weren't going to be able to make it this morning. One more chance to get your own name. Leo Bennett. Leo Bennett. I think it's Leo. All right. There we go. I'll let you pick from there. Who would have thought? Just pick, pick one of those that you want. There you go. He got the newest one. All right. So, Penny, I'll let you pick our other one then. No, he didn't get two. <laughs> Crystal Hicks. Is Crystal here? No? All right. Plenty of opportunities here. Larry Schultz. Larry Schultz. Where's Larry? All right. Larry's here. There we go. Larry, you can pick out one of these that you want. All right. Very good. Very good. <laughs> That's all right. We we won't. Uh, if we pick it again, we won't. Larry, ha- we won't let Larry have two of them. <laughs> um, okay, a couple more notes b- before I, I, I turn it over to uh, to Richard. Back here at the back, 
tomorrow, if you're able to be with us uh, tomorrow as well, um, uh, he's going to be doing the, the sermon tomorrow during our worship time, uh, and, and then also during our class time, our classes after our worship time, uh, we'll be doing a, a moderated Q&A time with kind of some reflections on, on the weekend as a whole. And so if you have a, a question, uh, either based on some of your other uh, re- times reading some of his books or seeing some of his other work or, or uh, questions about things that you hear throughout the weekend, there are some cards uh, on the table right as you leave this, uh, this auditorium. There's some cards back there and a basket to put them in. If you'll submit your questions there, uh, that's where we'll pull the questions from for the class tomorrow. And so if there's something that, that you think of uh, through the course of our sessions today, then just write it down on one of those cards, put it in that basket, uh, and then we'll, we'll ask him some of those questions tomorrow during class. Uh, we'll, after our first session this morning, we'll dismiss from here and head over to lunch. And uh, we'll, we'll give about 15 minutes to give our, our kitchen crew some time to pull all the stuff out and, and get everything ready for lunch. And then we'll enjoy lunch together uh, over in the fellowship hall. Uh, and then come back uh, after that, and so we'll we'll kind of re, uh, re not explain, but kind of go through all that again uh, after this session and, and pray over our meal and, and all that. So, uh, with that said, I'll I'll be done. And so, if Richard, if you'll come up, and I'll, I'll pray over you and our time today, and um, and then I'll just hand it over to you. Our Father in heaven, we are are, are so grateful for. For your love and your mercy and your grace toward us. Uh, God, thank you for your spirit um, that, that indwells within us and, and, and serves uh, to lead us, to guide us. We thank you, God, for, for your bringing us here together this morning. Uh, God, would you open our hearts and our minds and our spirits to what uh, Dr. Beck will have to, to share with us this morning. Uh, we, we appreciate his, his preparation uh, for this weekend, uh, his, his diligence in, uh, in, in researching and thinking through and, uh, and preparing uh, these thoughts and this, these messages uh, for us. We pray that, pray that there are blessings to each of us here, and uh, we pray that you would speak through him mightily uh, throughout this weekend. Uh, may we all, God, be, be vessels for your love uh, and your light in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe, and if I'm screaming and the amplification kicks in, then, then I apologize for yelling at you. Um, so uh, it's so great to be here. Uh, I want to just say hello to two, like, my dearest friends. Uh, Lee and Valerie Bennett um, aren't are members here, but, but we go way back. Like, when, was, when were we in church? I grew up in the Erie Church of Christ, where... It was about 87. <laughs> was it 87? That's when we went to Erie. Yeah, yeah. So way back then, they knew me as a, as a college kid back then and so don't talk to them at lunch about anything okay just 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 leave them alone and don't visit with them because they know things uh, about me and so they know me as rich probably so my I'm a junior and my dad's Richard and so he's Richard and I'm rich in Erie but outside of Erie Pennsylvania I'm Richard but and so if they call if you if they describe me as rich that's because they knew me when I was Rich Jr. Um, anyway, so I still am just just rich. Anyway, uh, so great to get, be with you. I'm really excited about the topic that you all picked. Um, 
Usually when I visit with churches, I'm talking about two of my other books, uh, Unclean and Stranger God, uh, books about kind of how we welcome people across the margins of society. And, and I kind of offered that as one of the things I could talk about. But the other thing I said is, well, I had recently given a talk uh, to a, a conference of Christian psychologists uh, in the Metroplex, and I made this argument about self-esteem. And it's going to and uh, I hadn't really presented that material for a church audience. I said, but I think it's really important because I talk a lot about these themes in a class I teach at ACU called Psychology and Christianity. And there's always one lecture in the semester that we kind of describe uh, in a kind of a silly way as the secret to happiness lecture. And so we kind of lead up to this lecture. It's the secret to happiness lecture. Make sure you you know aren't absent on that day. It'd be really sad, right, to go to ACU, pay a lot of money, spend a lot of time, and like leave not knowing the secret of happiness. I, I really think if you're going to go to school, you should at least get that uh, take on it. And uh, anyway, but you're going to hear some of that. So that's worth your getting up on a Saturday, right? Uh, secret of happiness? Okay, yeah, there you go. So you're like, so thankful we brought this guy in to talk about the secret of happiness. So now, I'm going to warn you, though, uh, it's going to be, it's kind of, you know, a lot of these presentations have this kind of feel, like there's kind of bad news first, right, the predicament, the problem, and then we're going to kind of walk our way kind of out of that dark spot. And so this morning will be kind of the, the, the trap, the, the problem, the predicament. So if you only are coming from the morning session and you leave after lunch, um, you're going to be really sad. <laughs> and, and you're not, you know, you're, and, and you're going to just feel like life isn't worth living. And I feel right. You're going to, I'm going to just take you to a dark place. So if you don't come back, please listen. I think they're recording this, and so there will be a recording. So I, I just want you to know, if you're like, I just came from the morning session and it was awful. Uh, he he just depressed me the entire time. That's going to happen. So lunch will be kind of weird, right? You're like, boy, he just really made me very sad this morning, and, and I don't want to come back. So there's, we, we make a turn, okay, towards, um, we make a turn towards the light in the afternoon. So if you want to know where the secret of happiness is coming, that's after lunch, okay? It's after lunch, all right? Um, so the title is uh, Self-Esteem, right, Beyond Self-Esteem. Um, uh, so Finding Peace in an Age of Anxiety. And so, is it Jamie? Jamie's running my slides for me from a distance. So let's, I don't know what my movement will be. Um, so if I, if, it's like, boy, he's got a weird little tick. It's me signaling <laughs> back there. So let me go, let's start. I want to talk a little bit about self-esteem, okay? It's kind of the working assumption in society about how uh, we achieve meaning and mental well-being, right? It doesn't, most of us kind of assume that the, 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 the ground floor of well-being, happiness, flourishing, is kind of rooted in a basic sense of self-worth or self-esteem, okay? So what is self-esteem? Well, um, these are some definitions. I didn't, I pulled a lot of the citations out of here, but like the first definition up there is one of the oldest, comes from William James, famous American psychologist that wrote over a century ago, and he wrote one of the very first psychology textbooks. And he said self-esteem is basically this ratio of uh, your aspirations um, and your successes. That makes sense. Your ideal self, the things you want out of your life, um, the goals you've set for yourself. Um, we all have a, a life we want. And, and then we're relatively successful or not in obtaining those goals. And the ratio of those successes to those ideals is your self-assessment, how well you're doing. 
And so self-esteem seems to be rooted in this basic idea of just evaluation. How am I doing? It's a measuring stick in one, um, that we have. Um, so performance, how well are you performing relative to your pretensions? He describes it, but I would say a better word is probably your aspirations in that sense. And obviously, right out of the gate, you're like, that seems problematic. Um, or as I like to tell my students, like a lot of us are always living out of the gap. There's the life I want, there, and then there's the life I have. And the discrepancy between those two um, creates sources of dissatisfaction and insecurity. And a lot of us just live out of that, out of that gap, out of that source of dissatisfaction. Um, evaluation, self-esteem is an evaluative kind of aspect, right? You appraise yourself, how well you're doing. And then there's a very popular theory in psychology called the sociometer. Um, so the idea here is a sociometer is self-esteem is this mechanism that we have psychologically that is kind of a self-assessment of how you're doing socially. And so you're constantly comparing yourself to others, appraising the degree to which people find you interesting, attractive. And I don't mean just physically attractive, but attractive as a friend, right? Do you feel wanted? Do you feel needed? Do you feel invited? Do you feel included? Do you belong? And, and there's this mechanism in your head, self-esteem, that basically tells you that, yes, you are wanted, you are desired, you, are, you do belong, um, but whenever you feel like you're on the outside, you feel lonely, you feel alienated, you feel unwelcome, not included, unpopular, then this feeling registers as a sense of sadness or dysphoria or insecurity because um, it's, it's feedback kind of telling you. So you're constantly chasing this feeling of self-esteem as a way of gauging whether or not you're in a group or not. Um, and so it's giving you kind of social feedback about it. So all that to say is this modern route to identity is rooted in these three things. Evaluation, right, a measuring stick of some sort, okay, that's rooted in performance, and it's also driven by the degree to which you are popular or interested in, um, to, interesting to other, uh, other people. We can go ahead, Jamie. So the assumption is uh, some data up here that um, low self-esteem is a vulnerability. I think that's a working therapeutic assumption of our culture, that if you have low self-esteem, that that kind of makes you vulnerable to a variety of kind of mental health complaints. And so it's problematic to have low self-esteem. And therefore, probably one of the largest kind of assumptions of therapy and parenting and coaching and teaching is to rehabilitate any low self-esteem. So if you have low self-esteem, the idea is to rehabilitate it and make it a therapeutic goal. Um, and so... We work on self-esteem. Okay, the modern route to happiness and well-being, self-esteem. Okay. Uh, and yet, next slide. We know that um, things aren't going well out there. I don't know if you've noticed. If you've kind of just surveyed the mental well-being of our culture, um, people aren't well. And, and again, I, I don't need to tell you this. I mean, the, our news feeds are full of... Of this, but here are just some from some large, really well done studies where um, depression has been on the rise now. From the, each cohort of generations is getting increasingly depressed and increasingly anxious. Psychopathology is just a fancy word for mental illness. So just mental illness across the board, anxiety, depression, all sorts of mental illnesses um, are on the increase. The suicide rate is increasing as well. Um, and, and obviously, rates of addiction and drug overdoses um, have been rising at alarming rates as well. So, the, so it raises the question, this 
kind of cultural assumption for a generation or at least two generations. We've kind of um, made self-esteem the object of our parenting, the object of our coaching, um, the object of our uh, teaching to just infuse self-esteem into each other and to our children. And then if they have this self-esteem, they're going to be resilient uh, and well. And it doesn't seem like it's working very well. And you might already be kind of going like, well, I was, I was worried a slide before. <laughs> like, like, like if or, right? So in one sense, you don't need for me to give you the bad news. Like already you should be somewhat suspicious that your mental health is dependent on your performance and how you evaluate and measure yourself in relation to others. That that seems, I don't know if you've noticed, really fragile, Right? I mean, that seems a very, fra- a very fragile foundation upon which to build happiness. Um, and so this is where we're going to kind of wade into the dark spot. So what I argued in front of all of these psychologists was um, I actually think we've made a deep mistake here. I actually think that self-esteem might actually be a bit of a trap. But we have been maybe instilling mental fragility into ourselves, by, by, by putting so much emphasis on self-esteem, we have actually been making ourselves increasingly vulnerable to illnesses. Um, and, it, and that this pursuit and evaluation and comparison to other people and performing for self-esteem has made us a really neurotic and very anxious culture. And so instead of self-esteem being, do I have it now? Well, that's lovely. Okay. Um, uh, um, has been, uh, and a lot of other social pathologies, not just mental uh, illness. I think there's a lot of other social things that can be rooted in this kind of modern path. So, so what I want to do is kind of do a deep dive into some of the reasons why I think this is a bit of a trap. So you can kind of detect the kind of contours of the breakage a little bit. Because um, I think it's important to kind of do a good diagnosis of ourselves. You're like, oh, I kind of see myself in that. Um, or I kind of see that playing out. So, so the morning isn't to just make you depressed, but it is to kind of give you a good diagnostic sense that as you are stressed or anxious or dealing with your own self-esteem or you're seeing things play out in the culture, that you kind of have, you, at least this morning, will kind of go, I see, what, I see how the chess pieces are being moved on the board. And that, that uh, description, that accurate description of the situation and your own heart gives you a capacity to play different moves on the chessboard. Um, so, there, so I think insight is important. It's not curative, right? Just having insight doesn't fix anything, but it does give you a capacity to make different kind of choices and different kind of moves. Um, does that make sense? Because uh, if you don't know where you are on the map, you can't navigate properly. So this morning is, is to help us kind of navigate a little bit, okay? So what I'm going to do is go through four, five, or six um, ways that I think self-esteem has been problematic and has kind of produced the wreckage that we saw on the previous slide, okay? So the first, uh, the first example is just uh, fine, fine-tuning. So if you think about self-esteem as this measuring rod um, where you have low self-esteem, that's the word we'll describe, right? You have lo- you're little in the tank, so you think of like it as a, as a gas tank or, or any sort of measuring device, right? You can be low on it. Um, and that, that is kind of our primary focus, is low self-esteem. 
But can you have too much self-esteem? You're like, I work for a guy <laughs> uh, who once had too much self-esteem. We have a name for that. What is it called? Starts with an N. It's narcissism or vanity or pride, right? So Christians are very alert to excesses of self-regard. And so it's problematic on the high end as well. Um, egotism, pride, vanity, uh, narcissism. And so, so I just want you to kind of just ponder that as a, bit of a, as a bit of a trap, right? You have this bandwidth of self-esteem from like really low self-esteem to kind of narcissistic levels of self-esteem. And, and uh, it's kind of like the visual spectrum, right? We, we can't see the entire, we see just a piece of it. And so let me ask you this question. Like, how, how wide is, so you're trying to throw this dart into the self-esteem bullseye, right? Not too much, not too little. That's why Goldilocks is up there, right? <laughs> right? You, you got to get it just, it's fine-tuned. You got to get it just right. You don't want your kids to be vain or prideful, but you also don't want them to be insecure or anxious. You got to get it just right for, like, your whole life, you know? And, and, and so all that to say is just from the beginning, there's a problem of just getting it right, too much or too little. Um, and we're constantly navigating this very, very precise bandwidth where, it's, where it seems like it works. That seems problematic to me that the, the, on the field that we're playing, that there's just this very narrow slot that we got to get the self-esteem into that makes it very hard to navigate. Um, and so just right out of the gate, I think there's a problem with the fine-tuning of it. In a more, in a darker way, um, self-esteem can be hard um, because it can get broken. Um, if self-esteem is fundamentally self-regard, right, self-esteeming, and you're looking in the mirror, and the mirror has been shattered in a variety of ways, then it can be almost impossible to rehabilitate any sort of positive self-regard in that sense. And so where, so up here you see examples of, yes, distortion, inaccuracy, or deception. So let me just, what do, you, what do I mean by that? Well, some of us, because of attachment figures, right, parental figures, or even just traumas, um, right, things have been done to us, things that have been said to us, that in many ways kind of just catastrophically ruin the self-esteem project right out of the gate. Um, and many of us know this, right? There, there, there are many of us that are in therapy, you know, as 50, 60-year-olds, still processing a, a kind of a, a, a brokenness that occurred decades before that just is, isn't, isn't, yeah, maybe you could super glue the mirror back together, but there's still this kind of crack there. There's still this vulnerability there. And then I'm like, I'm doing fine until I'm doing fine until something triggers all of that anxiety again. All of that comes back, right? The, the, the a criticism from your spouse triggers a lot of defensiveness. But that defensiveness isn't about that little comment. And you guys know that. You're not usually fighting about the present situation. You're dealing with deep backstories that lead you up to the moment of this little thing becoming a big thing. And a lot of that is rooted in some, some brokenness. Um, brokenness that we've done to each other or brokenness that have been done to us, you know. And so, like, you know, um, uh, not to bring up um, my, well, this is being recorded, so I'm going to have to be careful <laughs> uh, about that. But what, but but I know people I care about and love about, but like uh, uh, where a comment was made, something about um, a female here, 
um, a comment was made when she was in middle school about her weight. A kid, you know, she was teased for that season. She got chubby for that season. Comments were made about her weight. Um, but, you know, she grew out of that and, and, you know, was never chubby again. But there was a season when she was and got some feedback socially, um, some teasing. Not, and not horrible, just comments here and there. And those things had lodged in her mind in ways that cracked self-perception in lasting ways. And so comments, um, this dear person of, of mine, um, comments made when she was in middle school. She's still talking about she's 50. Right? Those, those, so this is what I'm talking about. So self-esteem is problematic in ways because it can get so broken in certain ways that we're kind of haunted and, and trying to put it all back together uh, again. So that's what I mean by, by a distortion. We, I was uh, giving the commencement address at my son's high school. And I said, one of the great sadnesses that I have for a lot of you students is that I don't think you've ever seen yourself clearly, ever. I, I would argue that many of us have never, ever seen ourselves clearly. And by that, I mean, as we'll talk about after lunch, as God sees us. Um, I mean, we might have heard about how God sees us. I'm kind of preaching a little bit here. Like, right? You, you've heard about how God sees you. You've been told how God sees you. But you have not actually ever seen it yourself. That vision is never really, you've never seen a clean mirror of yourself. It's always been distorted and broken through a variety of ways. Um, and so distortion, inaccuracy. Um, so for some of us, the self-esteem game is playing out on the low end, right? On the low self-esteem, on the insecurity, the inaccuracy. But for some of us, on the high end, on narcissism, again, that is a distortion of self-esteem. Narcissists have an inflated sense of self-ego, and so they have broken mirrors as well. They are constantly dealing with ego insults and placing themselves at the center of everybody's attention or concerns, whatever. But that's a, that's a distortion as well. Narcissists have broken mirrors. Um, and finally, um, what's interesting about self-esteem is that a lot of people who have high self-esteem uh, tend to engage in self-serving biases, that you, that you protect your self-esteem. Uh, if you have a vision of yourself that you kind of like, and then somebody gives you criticism... A lot of us will defend against that. That's an ego threat. And this is so every day we know that. Like, how many of you enjoy getting accurate feedback about yourself? <laughs> right? Like, like, nobody's like, tell me truthfully how I am. Like, I, I love it. I, I, just, I just marinate in just the feedback about how I am. Like, none of us... So there is a defensive, and we're going to get into this in a little bit, like there's a defensive aspect to self-esteem. None of us really like, so we don't actually want a clean mirror sometimes, right? We would rather have a distorted mirror of ourselves. Um, and, and that accurate feedback is something we would resist because it's too painful um, to hear about it. And so there's this kind of ego threat, um, I don't enjoy it when my wife points out criticisms of the way I'm behaving. I, I defend myself because that's too threatening to my self-image. And so, again, so there's a defensive aspect. All that to say is um, this second trap is there's this kind of inaccuracy or distortion 
that occurs and that may, we maybe even work really hard to kind of keep. So we can be broken by others or we might li- want to live with the lie that, which is why reality TV is so hilarious because you see people's behavior and you're like, this person is a raging narcissist, you know, and then you pull them aside and they talk about themselves and you notice the dis- discrepancy between how they self-describe themselves versus how they actually are. And you're like, how can somebody be so deluded? And the answer is, well, let's sit you down and get some feedback. And you're like, that, you know, like, like, like we're all living kind of a lie about ourselves. Um, that was, if Sigmund Freud, I'm not a huge fan of Sigmund Freud, but if Sigmund Freud um, said one thing that I think is really accurate is that our minds are largely kind of advertising agencies. You know, like we're constantly spin doctoring everything. Um, and it starts when we're little, you know, kids will blame their teacher, kids will blame their coach, you know, for the problems that they're having. So we're very, we're not really keen on um, taking responsibility for ourselves. All right, anyway, so fine tuning is a problem, broken mirrors are a problem. Um, this one might surprise you a little bit, but group conflict is another problem. I'm going to argue that self-esteem um, is at the root of a lot of our social ills and a lot of group conflict. Like, well, you're like, well, how is, I thought this is just a psychological problem about anxiety and depression. How is self-esteem playing out um, at the group level? A couple different ways um, it does. First of all is that um, a lot of our self-esteem is built around group affiliations. And Group affiliations, as you see in that first bullet up there, are largely driven by attraction to the similar. Um, We get validated in our interests, in our likes, and our dislikes because other people share those same hobbies, those same interests. You know, so you're going to get with that group here in a couple weeks. I'm going to show up for the very opening night of Star Wars, and you're going to be like dressed as a Jedi and go in your Darth Vader costume, and you're going to stand there with that group of weirdos, (laughs) and. but you're going to have a, a flush of self-esteem because you're going to sit around looking at all these people on opening night and go like, these, these are my people, right? <laughs> these are my people here. And, and they give you, because right, we like the same thing and you're validated for liking that thing. Everybody else in your family thinks you're weird or overly nerdy. You know, like, why you, you know, but, but these people, like, they get me. They're my people. And so we're tra- like is attracted to like. For natural reasons. It validates us, lets us know that we are... Be- Again, because what the sociometer, remember that? The, the sense that I belong, I'm included. Well, one of the ways you can belong and include is find people that like exactly the things that you like. That's the easiest route to belonging. Which is why things like sports teams and other affiliation networks um, are so important to us to find. Like if you go to a city and you don't know... Remember those times in your life? You go to a city, you don't know a person. So what do you got to do? You got to find that affiliation network, right? The, the workout group, the biking club, right? The, whatever it is that you like and you find those people, the sewing group, or the, you know, whatever it is that's your thing, you try to find it. Um, and on Sunday mornings, you're moving to a different region. You know, you put on the jersey of that team because, the, you know, the team's playing, and that gives you a sense of, like, tribe, and it gives you a sense of belonging. And all of that is good until it's not. Right? Isn't there a problem? What are some of the social problems that occur when like is attracted to like? 
Well, yeah, huh? Yeah, you, you have a bubble of sameness and homogeneity. Um, you move to zip codes where like is attracted to like. I, I would, I would, one of the most interesting things you can do with your internet surfing is go to the racial dot map. The last census, the racial dot map is an interactive map where you can go to and every person in the census is plotted on that map, um, but they're given a color depending on their racial group. And if you zoom in on any American city, you will notice a rainbow of intermixed. No, you'll notice clusters of color. Um, Zoom in on Temple, zoom in on Dallas, you know, zoom in on Abilene, Texas. You zoom on any, just, just go home, pull it up, zoom in on any city you want to, and you'll see same attracted to same, like attracted to like, living in zip codes and neighborhoods. Um, and to be clear, the reasons for that have, have a dark history, right? Those aren't just voluntary decisions that have been made, redlining issues and, and whatever. But I am saying that what happens is that, that a lot of us, are, without even really thinking of it, are just kind of attracted to places that where people look like me. Um, and that's not, so that's geographically similar, but it's also, like I said before, in interests. And then what happens is we have this start in-group, out-group, clickishness. Churches look very similar. Our neighborhoods look very similar. My interest groups look very similar. And so self, this drive to belong is good, but when left unchecked, it creates sameness. Um, uh, after that... Then we have, so once we get a group of sameness, then that group has a group identity, um, and it creates, the, the, one of the names for this is what's called uh, collective self-esteem. So it's not just individual self-esteem, but there's a sense of collective self-esteem. Now, not to pick on sports groups over much, but that's an easy first entry into understanding this phenomenon, right? Do y'all, anybody a sports fan? Like a team? So you understand what collective self-esteem is, right? How you are awesome <laughs> and your rival, okay, conjure up your rival, your sports rival, the people you hate. <laughs> you think of those people. Call them to mind, right? There is, a, there is a sense where my collective self-esteem for my team is leveraged against some other group, my rival, the other team, um, and so that's silly in one sense, okay? But, but it plays out morally. Now, I, I don't know if people are getting in fights in, in the football stands. They do. Uh, most of us are well-adjusted people, right? But, <laughs> but to me, one of the clearest examples of this, how many of you have ever sent your kids to Christian schools? Somebody send your kid to Christian schools? I think one of the great failures of the Christian moral witness is uh, Christian high schools, and you're like, why? Have you ever gone to a Christian high school football game as a Christian school is playing another Christian school and you've watched the behavior of the parents? Um, uh, it's awful. <laughs> it's awful. So here's like, you know, Cedar Creek Christian School playing, you know, Hickory Creek Christian School. Right? So, right? Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, when they sit on opposite sides of the field, 
And you've been there. How many of you have been there? You look across the bleachers. You can barely see their faces. But they're clearly subhuman people over there. You know, they're clearly not, they're not, good, they're not good people, you know, because their kids are playing against my kids. And, and you know, and they're, they're cheaters. Their coach is a little bit angry. Like, what's wrong with him, you know? And, and uh, he just doesn't seem like a very nice man over there, that coach, you know. But they're, you know, but they're on the other side. We know there's the symmetry here. They're on the other side looking across at you. It's your subhuman self, you know, and your cheating child and, and uh, less than self-controlled coach. And so, these, and so this hostility comes out towards this other team. And, the, you know, that because here's the thing, and it builds up. Because remember, because you got grudges from last year. Remember last year's game? And... And so it builds up. And so, so when I say one of those sad moral witnesses is Christian higher education, it's the way these high schools treat each other. And, and I sent my sons to high school, so I've sat by friends of mine that have come completely unglued um, by, by a sporting event um, and have said horrible things about the children of other Christians. <laughs> um, and I've seen it happen both ways. And you might go like, well, what's wrong there? And the answer is, here's the thing. Um, we, right? We, why, why are we acting that way? Well, just the day before, we had a pep rally, right? And what's a pep rally? But collective self-esteem, right? Go Panthers. That's where my son was, Yabley Christian School. Right? Go Panthers. We're, we're Panthers, and, right? And that means we're not Cougars, <laughs> You know, cougars are bad, panthers are good. And so you build up the collective self-esteem of that, of that group. And that's good until it's not good, right? Until you compete. And then you find your moral witness somewhat compromised in that competition. Now, that might seem silly. But think now about every other group. Most of us achieve group. Well, a lot of us achieve self-esteem through group affiliation. Right? You're an alumni of a university. That makes you matter. Okay? You, um, you're, the, you're, well, not to, like, step on your toes, but, like, even your nationality, that group, right? A lot of us get a lot of self-esteem by being a part of the greatest nation in the history of the world. There is a self-esteem buzz that comes from that group affiliation, being an American. Right, and that is good until it's not good, right? Till that group loyalty causes me to look across the geopolitical aisle and kind of go, those subhuman people in Canada, <laughs> you know, those horrible. If you've been to Canada, they're delightful people. I don't know why we think you know, but but it's it's similar. Like what plays across the the football field that a Christian high school game plays across national borders as well, right? Or state lines. Now, listen, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania. And I'll tell you what, when I first came to Texas, you all have some collective self-esteem. <laughs> like, like, like there's nothing like collective self-esteem among Texas, you know? And I was talking to somebody. I was talking to a student who was from Texas. We were driving through the hill country, you know? And they're like, what do you mean? I go, well, just, just the, the ubiquity of the Texas flag. Just... Like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, it's kind of everywhere. And, and I don't mean like flying. I mean like, like everywhere. It's just d- decor, 
You know, I grew up in Pennsylvania. We don't decorate in the Pennsylvania flag. But Texas, that, that flag, it's, on, it's everywhere, you know. And we just drove through like a little Texas town. And I said, let's just watch. And I said, let's count the Texas flags or the stars, you know, the big star, the lone star. And we went through and we counted up like 250, just bang, 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 bang. Every place of business, every sign, you know. And, and you don't see it because you're from Texas. So it's just kind of the, the backdrop. But if you come from a different place, you're like, hmm, this, 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 you know. Now, I love Texas. I've been here. I've now lived here longer than anywhere else. But again, being Texan is like, that's a, a form of collect, collective self-esteem. So it's good until it's not. Um, and we can go on and on, can't we? We can just, just, just list up all the groups that kind of give us identity from our employers to our colleges to our high schools, you know, to our nation, um, and they give us a sense of, and, and the, that creates then that group identity. And what we're going to talk about here in a little bit, more on this in a minute, is that this in-group loyalty is enhanced under threat. That when pushed, when times are tough, then this actually increases, this group, this tribalism um, that we have. Uh, and I would argue a large part of what's, that this is kind of what's going on more and more with politics. You might say, why, why are we increasingly so polarized? And some people are arguing is our, our politics are getting more polarized because they're becoming more, more tribal. And, and by that, I mean we're starting to, to see the group loyalty be, become the most important thing in politics. So it doesn't matter what your, your guy or girl does, you know, your senator or wherever. It's just they're, they're part of the team, and, and we circle the wagons around our team. Liberals do this, uh, and, and conservatives do this as well. And because of the, the collective self-esteem of being a Republican or being a Democrat and the, and the, the, the feeling of rightness that we get from that is good until it's not good, until you try to have a generous conversation with somebody across the football field of politics, and that's evaporating. So we've kind of lost our pragmatic approach to politics. Like, we've lost our ability to kind of just say, like, immigration, it's a problem. Like, we want to be hospitable. We're a nation of immigrants, but we also don't want to just have completely open borders. Okay? Right? We all agree on that. Like, problem. Like, let's, so, like, let's solve the problem. Like, what's a good balance? That used to be what democracy meant, right? Like, let's, let's work the problem. And it's going to be compromise and compromise. And, and it'll, it won't be perfect, but it'll be a balancing of all these different competing things. And, it'll, and then if it doesn't work, we, that's the thing about America. We're experimenters. Like, if it doesn't work, we, we go back to the drawing board, we tweak it and fix it. That whole pragmatic approach is lost because now it's not a game of solving problems. It's collective self-esteem against collective self-esteem. And to compromise is to betray your team. And so all of that middle ground of people who used to cross aisles to create kind of bipartisan legislation, that's evaporated now because you're disloyal. Um, and so I would argue that's a large part of what's happening in America today is that is as religion is on the decline in America, um, what's, what's giving our lives kind of existential meaning and purpose, like, like making a difference in the world, is increasingly politics. Um, politics is the way you're going to, like, save the world. And that creates a very moralized bad people versus good people dynamic, and it creates, that's hard, right? It's hard to compromise with bad people, right? You know, it's hard to negotiate with evil people. But that's, and I think that's where we are in America right now. Like, we can't, because they're evil, right? The the liberals are going to destroy 
religious liberty, you know, and if you're a liberal, you're like, it's, you know, the Republicans are all about kind of maintaining white supremacy, right? We're dealing with evil people here. So you cannot negotiate a, at all with anybody. So, um, so I think, um, and I said this last night, that one of the few places in this increasingly polarized, this is a side, this is just for free. You know, this is just me just saying something. Um, it's not really about my talk, but, but I do think one of the few places where Republicans and Democrats now do regularly cross paths are churches. It's, I don't know where else they do anymore. It used to be you would cross paths at the bowling league. Or, right, you used to cross paths, you know, at the, you know, at the, or, you know, the, the organiz- at the local barber shop or the diner. You know, does it make sense? There used to be spaces in America where we regularly, you know, sat around and argued about politics. But at the end of the day, you know, we loved each other because it doesn't make sense. Those spaces are gone. We, again, like is attracted to like. And as those spaces have evaporated in America and we've now spent more time online um, and in those kind of virtual echo chambers, we don't cross paths with people who actually have political beliefs that are different from ours, except in churches. Um, Like my church is very politically diverse. We have Trump supporters and we have uh, like Hillary Clinton supporters, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters. The trouble, though, is in our churches, and I don't know if you guys have the same problem, is that those two groups don't talk to each other a whole lot. You still move, even in this space, in different echo chambers. And so I think it's a great blessing that we're crossing paths in our churches, but it's also a great challenge because we're afraid that if we talk about politics, we're going to blow up the harmony of the church. Um, but I just feel, I feel really convicted that the church could figure this out. Like if we could demonstrate hospitality across the political aisles, that that would be exactly what the world needs right now, right? I know it's crazy to say that the world needs the church, <laughs> but it needs us. But, but we're going to have to do the hard work of listening to people in our, in our pews who differ politically and not do the demonization thing, Okay. Because Jesus' blood is what binds us together. And you can't let this collective self-esteem trump that. If, pol- if your political beliefs trump the cross, then, then we're in a really problematic situation. You've got to be able to lay even that down to, to you know, cross. The- but there's going to have to be a lot of anxiety. That's going to be really anxiety-inducing. I know because politics is really politically charged. And so it leads to this in-group bias. Our group is good and righteous, and that group is wicked and bad. Um, now, it's not just, hey, when, when do I need to stop? I need to stop at, like, is it 11.45, or is it 30? Where, where was I supposed to? 45, okay, good. All right, we're doing great. We're doing great. <laughs> just like I'm going to you know, worry about it. How many slides does he have? There's 200 more slides to go. It's not just a cross-group so it's not just across group boundaries that we have problems. Um, it's within the group itself. So intra, like inner group conflict. So you're, we're all in the same group, but there is dynamics within the group as well. Um, and so f- from the top of the group, psychologists talk about how uh, a lot of our self-esteem is leveraged 
against other people that we are better than. All right, and this is called downward social comparison. I'm socially comparing, but it's downward. Or as I like to tell my students, everybody is a snob about something. Okay? Think about that thing you're especially good at, especially educated in, especially talented in. Right? The, the thing that makes you like unique. That could be from quilting to your fourth quarter earnings to the number of wins on your JV basketball team, right, to the domestic successes of your children, you know, I have an honor student that's on your bumper sticker, you know, um, their successes. I don't know what that is, you know, or maybe if you trained in seminary, like when I, when I had my first preaching class, um, I suddenly became this expert in what good preaching was, and so I would sit in pews and go like, that's terrible, this sermon, you know. It's not exegetical enough, you know. You, you, you become a, became a snur. I became a sermon snob. Um, and it, does that happen to you? Seminary, you become yeah. You, it's hard to listen. You're like this is terrible. You you become a critic and evaluator, you know. And it's from the big things to the little things, you know. So my my students, um, just like even in your preferences, the things you like. In the, in the way that makes you snobbish towards other people. Uh, so I, 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 was a, I, I teach a research class, and so I break my students up into research teams, and I have them come up with a research project. What are, what are some, what is, what is something you want to study? And, I, and I'm walking around work, consulting with the teams, and I come to this team, and I go, okay, what did you guys come up What you guys come up with? And they go, we want to research um, a people who like country music. And I was just kind of shaking my head. I was like, okay, all right. Like, that's not really what the world needs right now, but that's all right. I mean, if that's, <laughs> that's what you all came up with, hey, let's study country music. Who likes country music? And I go, okay, so what's your hypothesis? And they go, well, wait for it. We have this hypothesis that we want to see the relationship between intelligence and who likes country music. And I'm like, oh, no. And I go, I go uh, and what's your... Do tell. What's your, what's your hypothesis? Well, I mean, they're, they're not being self-aware at least. They, they really are into this. So they, they, they think they've come up with like a Nobel Prize winning research project. <laughs> they, they think they're on it. I go, so what's your hypothesis? Well, we have this theory that people who have lower self-esteem like country music. No, 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 lower, lower intelligence. I mean, they, people with lower intelligence like country music. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, let me guess, none of you <laughs> like, like, like country music. And they're like, how, how did you know that? And I'm like, it's called downward social comparison, right? Like, like you don't like it, and anybody, would, anybody that would like such a thing has to be an idiot. You know, and and even even though that's silly, we there we this this game plays out all the time, right? Um, uh, how, how many of you have looked at some other? I mean, the, the amount of to to not be overly, you know, emphasizing this, but but uh, the, do, do you realize the degree 
to which your self-esteem is built upon scorn. Have you just you take an inventory of your day-to-day life and the number of times that you get up on a little high horse and look down at somebody and, 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 and reap the benefits, the glow of that scorn, right? Just, just the, 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 the self-love you just, just based over yourself and the way you look down at somebody and go like, those idiots, right? Um, and, and I would say this is exacerbated in, in the area of social media where you're just kind of looking at the, the, the scorn and just the, just the... And here's the thing. The algorithms of Google, they know that about us. There is a, there is a, there is a, there is a machine behind the thing that just knows, oh, they're going to love this. I'm just going to put this link up there, and they're going to click on it. And for a good 10 minutes, they're just going to go like, these horrible, idiotic people. You know, and just, just, ah, oh. and Google's, oh, you know, and then there's ads all around it, and they made their money on you, right? They're like, that's a clickable link, and so that's big money, right? You click on that link. Anybody that puts an ad on there is paying big money for that, for that click, right? And, and so that's the dark side of this is how the, the social media algorithms are just making money off of our scorn, um, just banking it, um, my favorite example of this are the Sneetches. <laughs> Does anybody know the Sneetches from Dr. Seuss? Um, this inner group hostility. This is my favorite story of inner group hostility. And I think it's a great metaphor for how capitalism makes money off of our insecurities, our, our quest for status. Um, I really do, do think this book, little story is one of the most subversive stories ever told. If you just ponder it, a lot of people ponder it from self-esteem, but there's also kind of like a consumer, consumer, consumeristic aspect to this. Do you guys remember this story? How many of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about? You're like, I have no idea. All right, here's the story. There are sneeches. These are made-up creatures, okay? On the beaches. It's Dr. Seuss, so it rhymes, okay? <laughs> and on the beaches, some sneeches have stars upon theirs. They have these stars on their bellies, okay? I don't know if you can see them there, right? And because they have stars, they're better, this right downward social comparison, they're better than the Sneetches that don't have any stars. And I don't know what this star is, right? Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's your new iPhone. You know, I don't know what it is, but we all have, the, we all have, our culture gives us stars at every age of development. So when you're a little kid, it's getting to be the first kid to show up with a smartphone. Do you remember that day, the kid that shows up first day, and they're the first one to get that, or the Switch, the, you know, the Nintendo Switch, right? The, the, the amount, remember the sociometer, the degree to which you're popular, included, cool, and getting that, the first kid to get a Switch, and that day on the playground that you have, like you are the center of attention for that day. And then you're like, oh, my. But, but everybody that doesn't have a star in their belly, doesn't have this, they come home, they pressure you as parents. Like, I have to have it. You're like, and they feel the insecurity over there in the background. And so, so there's this in-group. So on, to go back a slide, right? From the top, there's downward social comparison. Um, from scorn to just feelings of smug superiority, but from the bottom, envy, jealousy, 
and even hostility um, toward the people on the top, to the winners, and that feeling of insecurity. So it gets leveraged not just as inferiority, but as like social hostility. Um, Anyway, what happens in the Sneetches is a guy shows up, and uh, I forget his name, but he shows up to the Sneetches, and he goes, hey, if you give me some money, I'll put a star on your belly. And they're like, oh, I'll totally do that. So they pay up. And then everybody has a star. Well, then suddenly nobody's special anymore, right? Because, again, you got to create some separation. Self-esteem is based upon, right, this status. And so the star-bellied Sneetches that had the star, you know, they don't like this kind of new egalitarian democratic fairness. And so they go to the guy and go, can you take the star off of us? He goes, for a price. So they pay him money. And if you watch this, the video online, he just starts going back and forth, selling his product to all the Sneetches, removing, adding, adding two, taking away three, just back and forth. And they just start, he just banks all this money, and then at the end of the day, packs up and leaves. And that is Google. <laughs> that is Google and Amazon, Right? Googling, you're, like, you're pursuing stars, buying stars, clicking on stars to feel better, to, over, to, to compete, to compare. It's Instagram, right? And there's just this big machine banking money off of our neurosis, our desire to be better than other people or to at least keep up with other people. Um, I was reading an article just the other – and this is not news. I'm not the first one that's told you this because I just read an article the other day about Instagram and the title of the – the whole article is how Instagram ruined our lives. And they, and, they, and they described Instagram as, quote, that poison of narcissism and envy, unquote. But again, it's both sides, right? Narcissism, the downward social comparison, here's my awesomeness, take a look at me. But also, right, the poison of downward social, but also the poison of envy, that it hasn't been healthy um, to scroll through everybody's best, happiest moments. It just, that's, that takes a social toll on you to kind of look at everybody's perfect life, which you know is not perfect. To go back to broken mirrors, Instagram is a broken mirror. You're not getting anybody at their worst days. Um, and so that's, how, that's what they were saying. It's like the, the emotional toll of comparison, good and bad, has, has ruined us. That's, that was the argument of the article. Um, and I'm, again, I'm not the first person that has, that has made that comparison about how social media is feeding into. I, I want to be clear. Uh, I'm not blaming social media or Instagram. I'm not. I think, I think that's not the problem. I think the problem is putting your self-esteem in self-esteem. And then what happens is a technology comes by that, that, that grabs a hold of that vulnerability. So I don't think social media is the cause of it. I think the cause is when your identity is tied up in social comparison and then a, a technology that kind of plays in a social comparison is invented, those two come together and create um, – it's like, it's like Facebook wasn't the match, but it was the accelerant. It was the lighter fluid. I blew, blew that up. We were always kind of neurotic people. And then social media came along, and then it, excel, it, it, it just blew out that, nar- that neuroticism. And anyway, watch the Sneetches at some point. So if you kind of go away and go like, what was he talking about? Just watch the video. Um, okay. 
All right, so now let's go even darker. Like I said, we're going to a dark spot. We go even darker. Everyone even wants to be hero, neurotic, death, anxiety, and defensive uh, problem four. So we've talked about fine-tuning, broken mirrors. We don't have accurate perceptions of ourselves. Self-esteem is deeply implicated in group conflict. On the high side, narcissism. On the low side, envy, jealousy, but also group hostility. Um, but now I want to talk about kind of uh, the, the, the neurotic aspect. I've been describing self-esteem as neurotic. I want to talk a little bit about what that means. Um, and this is coming from a theory called terror management theory. So uh, this is going to be the heaviest psychological lifting of the, of the day. So if, if you don't track with me completely, um, that's okay. The, so this next little bit might be a little abstract. I have a cartoon to illustrate it to try to help, Okay. But terror management theory is a theory in psychology that has been motivated by two big questions. One is, why are we just interested in self-esteem in the first place? Like, why aren't we just indifferent to it? Like, why do we thirst for self-esteem so much? And then they have a related question, which is, why is self-esteem so implicated in group hostility? Everything I just talked about. So in many ways, this theory is going to tie together some of the previous slides. Why do we even care? Why do we even thirst for this self-esteem, and why is it so connected to group uh, hostility? It's called terror management theory um, because its focus is on existential anxiety or, or death anxiety, um, and that's the terror. So the terror here isn't the terror of a horror movie. It's the kind of the existential terror. That, and the idea here is in terror management theory is that human beings are um, the only creature that self-consciously knows it's going to die. And that creates a kind of a unique psychological anxiety in us, an existential anxiety, not an anxiety about, you know, paying bills, but, it, but it, like a big kind of Ecclesiastes anxiety, right? What's the point of all of this? And Ecclesiastes says, you know, the dog and the man die, and who knows where they go, and it seems all pointless. This is, so if you... So if you, if you don't like existential, think Ecclesiastes anxiety, right? right? Uh, that book, and it's just kind of like, this is kind of a depressing book in the Bible, right? We don't read it a lot, but that kind of anxiety. What is the point of it all, as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes? Vanity of vanity or meaninglessness, meaninglessness. Why? And it's all about death. We all just die. What's the point, right? I pursue wisdom. I build a company, and I leave it to fools, you know, um, that kind of anxiety. Most animals, as far as we can tell, are not aware. They can't write a book like Ecclesiastes, so they escape the burden of this meaninglessness, meaninglessness, you know. Like squirrels are blissfully unaware of this. They don't know they're going to die, you know. Squirrels don't have midlife crisis. Like, have I wasted my life? <laughs> what, like, 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 like I've, I've been just chasing nuts my whole life. I just don't know if I... You know, am I, you know, they're, they're just kind of carrying on, just happy, and you kind of envy them. Dogs, not neurotic, you know, you know, uh, but I tell you what, my students wake up at 3 a.m. in existential terrors, going like, am I wasting my life? Am I majoring in the right thing? Like, I, you know, I get more coffee invitations over existential panics than, than almost anything else. What's the point of it all? I don't know, you know. Um, and so this, this creates this 
ability to approach that creates this anxiety. And you actually see it. For those of you that raise kids, you know this, right? There's a moment in childhood development when the child's intellectual ability kind of gets death for the first time. Like, it, like there's literally an onset of this. They kind of like mentally know. They can finally connect the dots and they'll say, Mommy, like you'll die one day? You know? And, and, and they kind of realize, uh-oh, death is a thing. And, and, and kids will go through a season of disequilibrium. Have you ever seen this with their children or themselves have experienced this? They go through a season of that, some more than others. And obviously, that's an intolerable situation. I don't know if you've ever been around an existentialist, but they're not fun to be around, you know. They just kind of wear French berets, smoke cigarettes, and go, we're all going to die one day. You know, like, like well, you're, like, you're a bit of a downer, John. <laughs> like, I just, you know, really don't want to hear about it all now. Um, can we just watch the game? And, you know, so, so you, you can't go through life that heavy all the time. You know, you try. When you, remember in college and you were a little heavy, you know? Um, and by the way, this is... Not to get too confessional here, but like, this is the reason why my wife and I, we dated and we broke up. And the reason why she broke up with me is this very reason. Like I was in like an existentialist phase. It, and, and, and like every, she liked me. She goes, I like Richard because every conversation I had with him was unlike any other conversation I had with any other guy. Like it was always heavy and deep. But after a good couple weeks, she's like, like I need a break. You know, like so, so we are breaking up because you are too heavy. And so you can't be in this place all the time. Um, you can't have existential panics all the time. And so, so according to terror management theory, um, what happens, the way we deal with this anxiety, it's always there. It's always rumbling beneath the surface. And, and, and it, perc- it pops up occasionally. Maybe it's, maybe it's the midlife crisis. I'll look back on what I've been doing, like, what's the point of all that? Maybe, you know, I mean, it hits you at random times, um, some of us, more than others. But we cope with it through what uh, is called a cultural hero system. The, the, the way we deal with this anxiety of, like, what is the meaning of life? What's the point of it all? Your culture steps in and kind of says to you over and over again, this is a good life. This is a life that makes a difference, you know. Like I tell my students, if you go to any college or high school commencement address, you'll hear the, the hero system of American culture. And the hero system is what? You will, you're, you're, you're yeah, capable, talented, you could do anything you want to do, and you will leave a lasting mark on the universe. Now, that, maybe that's because you build a big company and become a great benefactor, or maybe it's because you mentor inner city kids and you make the difference. And how many kids you got to make a difference in, according to the hero system? Just one, right? Because, if, because the idea here is if we peel this back, because if we get to your life and you have made no difference to anybody's life at all, we would say that would be a sad life, right? They didn't make a difference in passing on some sort of love or care or affection. So it doesn't have to be a lot, but it's got to be a child, an inner city kid you mentor, that student you teach in the third grade, that you encourage them to go on and say, you're good at this. You know, or, 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 or it's the, you, the company you build and the way you create a difference in the world and for your employees and your customers. Right? 
we're, we, we know what this system's like. You're going to make a difference. And why do we need to make a difference? Because the terror is, if we just kind of come and go and left no mark, no impact, then we would feel like life was a waste, meaningless, right? It was the point, right? And so we're constantly, so the hero system is here, okay, we know you're anxious. We know that you want to live a meaningful life. Here's how you do that. You're going to make these lasting differences. You're going to change the world or whatever. And because of that, um, we begin to settle in, right? We, don't, we, we settle into this path of being a hero, whatever our culture says. Now, there's the big American, we call it the American dream. There's the big American hero project. We're all Americans, and we kind of get it every day on TV and on, you know, online, whatever like that but we also have our own little hero system so some of these can be smaller and domestic like your family has a hero system the family you were raised in so like i grew up a back coach back you guys know coach back leave out you know and so we had a you know being a back there was a way to be a hero in the back family it meant certain things my dad was a coach and so the, the 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 biggest way to be a hero in the back culture hero system was hustle dad was a basketball coach hustle and hustle represented effort like you might not win the game, you know, but you could go for the loose ball. You don't have to be the most talented basketball player on the floor. You might not score 30 points. But if there's a loose ball, I don't care if it's LeBron James or Richard Beck, you can get that loose ball because that is hustle. And so in my family's hero system, that was what was praised. That was what was honored. And actually, that's not a bad, that's not a bad hero system. Like, I appreciate my dad. Um, instilling that particular virtue. But, you know, the other virtues of our family could be, you know, appearances, right? You have to look a certain way. You have to dress a certain way. And, and, and uh, Bex, this is the way we hit, you know, we got in the world just looking this way. And so appearance becomes a part of the hero system. And so, you know, fashion and accessories, that's a thing because that's the way you've achieved, right, a heroic identity in your family. Um, or maybe if, you know, you come from a family that's very success-oriented. I got a lot of students that are majoring in um, medicine, wanting to be a doctor, and they're not good at science at all. And they're crashing out. And they're suffering from the shame of not being able to pass organic chemistry or advanced calculus. And so they're dealing with all this insecurity. And so you might ask yourself, well, why would somebody who's not good in science and math pursue, you know, Science and math. Like, like, why would you do that? Why, you're a square peg. Here's a round hole. Why would you just spend your life going, <laughs> this must happen? Why? why, why you, got, you don't have to be a psychologist to understand. Why are these students pursuing pre-med degrees? They come from families of doctors. There's a hero system in that family. There is a status. Certain jobs are high status and heroic. Other certain jobs would be, well, right, frowned upon. Even going to college is a hero system in some families. You know, not going to college would be unthinkable. Like, I just want to be an electrician, mom and dad. You know, some families, they'd be like, whoa, wait a second. Like, like, that's not how we hand out the blue ribbons in this family. <laughs> you know, if you want first prize, here are the blue ribbons. Here's how you pursue it. And so you do. And here's the thing, it's not even really a decision to be important, right? It's not really a choice. You just, you just imbibe this. You just imbibe it from your culture. You imbibe it on the playground. You know what 
your culture says makes a significant, meaningful life, and we, we just kind of snap into the, snap into the root and pursue it. And, and we very rarely, except maybe 3 a.m. randomly or at a midlife crisis, step back out of the hero system and kind of go, hmm, like, is this really significant? Like, what have I... What I've poured my time and my treasure and my blood into, like, is it really durable? So you, you read the book of Ecclesiastes and kind of look back at it all. That's what Ecclesiastes does. Isn't that what it does? He steps out of the hero system of his culture. He looks at it all and he goes, it, it's, uh, it's like a mist. It's, it's shifting sands. Right? And, and, and that's why, but notice the price of questioning the hero system is that Ecclesiastes angst. It's not a cheerful book because kind of th- you're kind of thrown back out into the winds of, well, then what's the point of it all? Um, and it's hard to stay out there emotionally. So we just kind of go, well, I don't know what it means, but, you know, I got work tomorrow. And so you go, you know, and then <laughs> and you just keep carrying on. And, and so it kind of gets, it gets repressed again, okay? Now... And so this is called the anxiety buffer hypothesis. Self-esteem is an anxiety. It's performance in the hero system. Um, That's what self-esteem is, that our culture gives us a way to achieve significance, and we just perform in in it or whatever. Um, It goes by different names, you know, the American meritocracy, um, right, achieve, succeed. But you'll notice a large part of achieving self-esteem in our world is performance in the hero system. There are certain things that matter in our world to your parents, to your university, to, your, you know, your, to a Texan, to an American, and we comply with those things. Um, and, uh, but the reason I want to sit here and say this is a trap is that that fundamentally means rumbling underneath all of our pursuit of significance, mattering, worth, and value is being fundamentally driven by this anxiety. Um, and that makes us really fragile. Because that's not, to, have, to, to build your life, your career, your meaning, on a, on a foundation of anxiety is very worrisome. And this is one of the reasons why I think America is increasingly unwell. Because if your foundation isn't something more durable than that, it's just performing in the hero system, then that is a very fragile situation. I mean, un- unless you're winning, right? If you're, if you're winning, it's, it's working just fine. You know, you're killing it. You're crushing it. Um, but anybody who's spent any time at all on this planet knows um, winning can evaporate really quickly. Uh, you're crushing it, you know, in the corporate world until the company is bought out and you're let go. And suddenly, a life that has meaning and significance goes. And then you're back to, I don't have any value anymore because I'm unemployed. Work for men is a huge part of the hero system. And to be a non-productive male because of disability, age, um, a changing work environment, um, being on a spate of unemployment, Right, that that that'll that'll hurt a man hard in the self, you know, in the to not perform in the hero system of American manhood. Uh, 
Women, it's different. Um, women, uh, the hero system is uh, you got to be good at everything. <laughs> you know, when, that's the problem with women's. The hero system for women is the whole. You guys remember? Is anybody a fan of Brene Brown? Okay, so so great. Brene Brown is a good diagnostician of this, but she talks about one of her videos how there was that commercial kind of in the first, second wave of feminism where the woman comes home is like, I, she's working the corporate pre- workplace and she comes home and fries it up. It works, works on, bring home the bacon, fries it up in the pan and never let you forget you're a man. So she's excellent at the workplace. She's crushing it in the corporate boardroom. She's also a really good cook <laughs> and has the energy and the time to do that and is also sexually attractive, right, to her husband. She's just... All of those things. And Brene Brown says, I don't know if, you know if that may advance the cause of feminism a whole lot, but I know it sold an awful lot of antidepressants. <laughs> right? And so, uh, so it's different for women, right? So it's, 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 it's feeling, it's feeling um, bad at everything you do. That's women, right? It's bad, I'm, it's, I'm bad at everything I do because I can't give attention to everything so men kind of get to win because they get to do one thing well. And if they're doing well, that's great until they're not. And so in a fragile economy, but women, they struggle because they, 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 they can do everything. And if they aren't doing anything, they're shamed by other women. So if you say, I would just like to raise my kids, right, then you're constantly feeling like you're letting the side down, you know, by, by opting for motherhood. You're letting the side down. Uh, some, a lot of my students, female students, struggle with that. So you can't win either way. If you go to work, you're going to be exhausted. If you stay at home, you're going to be, you know, not helping out the team. Um, you're not going to be taking down the patriarchy that way, you know. So you're just kind of stuck. All I have to say is, right, but notice there that it's, if you are doing well across all those fears, it works, but that it doesn't work, um, and so, so if your self-esteem is fundamentally, here's another way to think about this. If your self-esteem is fundamentally a defense mechanism against this kind of existential anxiety, then that means your self-esteem is fundamentally a defense mechanism. It's not healthy. It's a form of mental illness. And, um, and so, the, so the question in terror management theory is like, okay, so... Why are we so interested in self-esteem? Is because it, it, it helps us defend against the terror of meaninglessness. It helps us answer Ecclesiastes. We go like, you know, um, uh, my life makes a difference and it matters because my parents told me it matters and America has told me this matters and my boss tells me I'm awesome and, you know, like I, I, get, I get all the blue ribbons. I collect all the blue ribbons. And, and it also helps us socially uh, because that's how you matter to other people in the hero system. What do you do for a living? You know? and, and, and so you, you constantly, when you meet other people, kind of like roll out your blue ribbons. You know? Some of you can do it, some of us do it clumsily, brag a little bit too much too quickly. Some of us do it subtly, right? So there's a social skills problem here. But fundamentally, we're all kind of doing the same thing, right? We're kind of saying, let me slowly let you know how well I've done in life and, you know, show you my grandkids or just casually mention the golf trip that I just took with the corporation or whatever it is, right? Mention that your kid is the starting quarterback um, or put a, 
I have an honor student on your bumper sticker, right? Whatever it is, yeah, but you, these are the things you display, right? So you can think of your trophy case in the hero system that you kind of show the world, say, look at this. Um, and again, if you're winning, that's pretty awesome. But if you kind of feel like, ah, it's kind of spare, I don't have a lot, then you feel the downside of the hero system. You feel like you're not um, thriving. So I think terror management is this big idea that uh, performing in the hero system. So I talk to my students a lot about this because they're really anxious. And, and so when I talk about the secret of happiness, this is kind of where we ta- I take them, right? That you're going to go out there and you're going to kind of perform your whole life. You know, you're going to be walking your 6,000 steps. So you have a beautiful figure, you know, and you're just going to just obsess about that for, you know, 50 years of your life. Like your weight, you're going to obsess about it for 50 years, you know, because that's the hero system, you know. Or it's going to be, you know, your corporate earnings and your promotions. I don't know what it is for you, but you got something up there that you're kind of hanging your worth on. But it's being driven by a sense of, like, if I don't have that, then who am I? Very quickly then, that takes us to the second part of the hero of the terror management theory. So we're interested in self-esteem because it helps us approach death. It helps answer the preacher of Ecclesiastes. But then it creates what's called worldview defense. So when other people are pursuing alternative hero systems, so that's what that represents. Somebody pursuing a different hero system. Um, uh, that creates anxiety in us because when people pursue this alternative hero system, this is where the cartoons come in, right? It, it raises questions about our own hero system. Um, if somebody opts out of our hero system, then we kind of go like, well, well, maybe there's another way to do this. And it questions my, you know, everything I've kind of staked my career on and you, and you kind of opt for something different, you kind of feel like, well, that... that I don't like that question mark put beside what makes me matter. Um, so I gave a very similar talk to this at, a, at a, a retreat that was kind of, it was, I don't know what kind of, it's hard to describe what this, this retreat was, but it's basically kind of half networking, half Christian conference, but for hand select elite players in the business world. So the people in my little breakout group were like VPs from Goldman Sachs, and they were talking about like their fishing boats and cabins in Vail, Colorado. And I'm like a college professor from Abilene Christian. I'm like, you know. Um, I drive a Ford Focus, you know, and uh, a tan Ford Focus. There's no more boring car. I challenge you at lunch to come up to me and say, there's a more boring car than a tan Ford Focus. You know, I don't know. And in Abilene, Texas in the winter, it's perfectly camouflaged. I can't, you can't, it's, it's so brown out there, you can't even see it. I could sneak up on anything in that car. It's like a stealth car in West Texas. It just perfectly matches the grass. Yeah. Anyway, and I was talking about this. Let's talk about the hero system. And they're playing, and they're playing high, they're playing a high octane game where their world is, you know. And um, so I kind of told them about this. And uh, I talked about the shame about they would have to endure if they had to step out of that high-octane world. So they're, kind of, they're workaholics. They're performance junkies. And, um, and, uh, and somebody was talking about Sabbath. 
So, so it's, not, it's fascinating. I don't know if you guys have conversations about Sabbath. You guys have conversations about Sabbath here? And, and like in my church, you know, you, we talk about Sabbath, and we kind of ask the church, you know, hey, does anybody need a rest? Anybody need a rest? You know, a little Sabbath. And everybody's exhausted. More on that in a minute. Um, but I go, the problem is, though, I tell these corporate guys, because they were like, yeah, we need Sabbath. We need to rest. We're just go, 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 go. I go, but here's the thing. There's largely guys I was talking to, high-octane corporate types, cap, venture capitalists. Here's the thing, though. If you're going to take a Sabbath, you're going to stay home on a Saturday to bake pancakes with your children, you know that the other guy is going to be there in the office, lapping you. And so you want Sabbath, but yet you can't opt out of the hero system, right, to, to allow somebody else to, get, to make more than you, to outcompete you, to get out-promoted. Does it make sense? And do, you see, do you see how your, our self-esteem is tied to this addiction? So we want Sabbath and we want rest, but we can't, we lack the shame resiliency for Sabbath. Because to opt out of the hero system to rehabilitate yourself, to create a different kind of life, means that people will pass you in the meritocracy. And that's so shaming for us that we just can't pay that price. And so we stay exhausted. So this performance in the hero system, right? Anyway, that's not why I'm telling you that. I put some question marks against the hero system. So I, you know, I said, hey, bake pancakes with your kids on a Saturday. Opt out. And that's exactly what they did, right? They loved that message. They were like, oh, that's exactly. So my small group, I had to go because another group asked me a question. And my wife came back. I said, how'd the group go? She goes, well, it didn't go well because these guys just kind of turned against you. And like, well, who's this guy to come in and tell us, you know? And my point here is when I kind of proposed an alternative path, it raised questions about everything that made their life matter and significance, and, and we don't like that. And so what happened um, is because the reason is because cartoon here, um, it creates the anxiety comes back. And so rather than deal with that anxiety, what happened was they attack me or they attack somebody who's pursuing a different kind of life. They then double down on their worldview um, the questions go away, and therefore the anxiety goes away. And so this whole thing is called worldview defense, where I double down in the hero system to deal with my anxiety. If somebody questions it or pursues a different way of life, different value system, rather than deal with my anxiety, I'd rather just attack them and defend my group, and that makes me feel good. And so this is the dynamic at the root of that group conflict we were talking about. Um, that's why groups are so important to us. And so that means that self-esteem, not only is it a defense mechanism, it's also, like, like I've talked about, a large source of social hostility toward difference, toward difference. Um, last, as we kind of come, last couple minutes here, last trap um, that we're talking about, trap five, the never enough problem in scarcity traps. Um, this comes from Brene Brown. If you've never encountered Brene Brown, I highly recommend her work to you. Start with Daring Greatly. Um, 
If you're not a reader, there, she has two uh, TED Talks online. Watch those. Really worth it, your time. She's an expert in the area of shame. And again, shame is just not performing in the hero system, male or female. It's the feeling you get for, for losing. Um, and uh, a large part of her book is, is talking about how we live in a world described by the uh, scarcity, never being enough, never measuring up enough, never having enough. And, and again, I think self-esteem is always going to be triggered by scarcity. Whenever there's scarcity, um, we're going to start raising questions. And so our last trap is scarcity and how it triggers anxiety in us. So this is Brene Brown on scarcity. This is what she writes in her book, Daring Greatly. She goes, we get scarcity because we live it. Scarcity is the never enough problem. And scarcity thrives in a culture where everyone is hyper-aware of lack. And I would say that's the American culture right now. Everybody's hyper-aware of lack. Everything from safety to love and money and resources feels restricted and lacking. And so we spend inordinate amounts of time calculating how much we have, how much we want, what we don't have, and how much everybody else has and needs and they want. For me, and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next thought is, I don't have enough time. Now, whether this is true or not, this thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. And so we spend most of the hours of our days hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. So before we even step out of bed, before our feet touch the ground, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking in something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what I didn't get or didn't get done that day. And so we go to sleep burdened by those thoughts, and we wake up to this reverie of lack, which is a great line, this reverie of lack, just not enough time, I don't have enough energy, I don't have money to pay the bills, I don't know how I'm going to get all done today. And so this internal condition of scarcity This mindset of scarcity, it lives at the very heart of our jealousies. We've already been talking about that. Our greed, our prejudice. We talked about the outgroup hostility. And our arguments with life. And so the never enough problem in scarcity is constantly being triggered by our self-esteem. And then I go on and talk about um, what I call scarcity traps. And I've already described the scarcity trap to, to you. Like, when I, when I go to churches and I talk about spiritual formation, and I, and I ask pastors and preachers and spiritual leaders and, you know, spiritual directors, go, like, what's the number one spiritual formation, formation problem in your church? You know, like, you, you want to take people on a journey into spiritual wholeness and wellness and happiness. Like, you want to you know, through worship and our, our life together to kind of help with that. Um, what is the number one obstacle that you're facing? 
And the answer is uh, exhaustion. People are exhausted. They just, they just don't have time or energy. Uh, I told you some of my books uh, are about hospitality, welcoming strangers into our lives. And, and once, uh, so occasionally I'll get invited to a church that has some new welcoming initiative or they kind of want to move the needle on welcoming our neighbors. And preachers will get up there and they'll talk about, you know, love is messy. It involves getting in each other's lives. And everybody in the audience is listening to that going like, well, that's just not for me. <laughs> like, I know you're trying to preach the sacrificial way of the cross, preacher, but uh, I got soccer practice at 3 o'clock today. You know, I got a coach, and I got laundry to do, and I'm working two jobs, and I got to get my kids. Like, 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 this vision of the messy, complicated life. I don't have, I don't have any margins for that. You want me to show up and listen to a guy talk for a couple hours on a Saturday morning? I could do that, right? Because we're going to be done at two thirty, right? You know, because I have, you know, you have things to do. Like, I could do that. You want me to schedule this, listen? But he's not going to like break us in small groups, make us share our lives. I don't, I'm not going to leave with any obligations. Am I to do list? Like, no. Okay, okay, because that's you know, I got some leisure time. It's a good way to spend a Saturday morning. I could do that. Right? But the complicated messiness of life, we're, like, we, we just, we're overburdened, overtaxed. And, and if I told churches, I said, hey, if you really wanted to move the needle, like you wanted to take, and I'm not trying to put you guys on, on the hook here. I'm talking about every church I've ever been to. If you just sit the, the pastoral team together and say, hey, why don't you guys dial up a 365-day curriculum starting on New Year's Day? that would just take this church and revolutionize it. You know, like just take us on a journey of spiritual formation and commitment and investment that would radically transform our families, our personal lives, our relationship with God and this city for the grace of God. Could you just sit down and just draw that up for me? And they'd be like, yes. We would do this and we'd do this and we'd read this and we'd get together this much. Just get a whiteboard out. And then I go, and so you roll that out on New Year's Day, and people look at that, and they go like, ah, <laughs> like, uh, that's, that's a lot. Like, uh, I got this much time, and you just said this much. Those don't fit. Um, so I could do this thing, though. Like, I could do that. You know, you want me to bake a casserole? You know, I could do that. You may set out chairs for the lunch. Like, I can do that, you know. Does it make sense? And, 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 you, and so I would argue that behind the scenes, this, this, this busyness, this exhaustion, what's driving all of that? Like, we know here's our lives and here's what we could be spiritually as a church, as a community. And we can't get there because we're so busy and exhausted. And, and you say, well, why is it? And I would say scarcity. You got to pay the bills, Got to work, right? I mean, so there's a scarcity of income that keeps us busy. So let's just name the social justice piece here, right? There's income issues um, causing us to work multiple jobs. And so America's economic prospects and the, the struggles of the middle class and, and blue-collar workers now that, that can't, you know, can you, can you work just one job with a high school degree? And the answer is probably not. You probably have to work two. 
and, and that, you know, and, and, and they're both going to work you part-time, and they're not going to give you health insurance on either one of them. And so you got to deal with that in student debt. I mean, there's, so there's some scarcity, just real, straight-up economic hardship. But the other part is there's also the neurotic scarcity of, you know, my kid needs to be in the soccer. They, we need to be in the travel league. My kids wants to play in high school. They got to be a part of the travel league. And if that means we got to play soccer every weekend, every year, you know, for the next couple of days, making us very unavailable to the church. Well, the hero system of, you know, man middle school is you, you are on the travel team. Like, you got to do it. And so we do it because to opt out of the hero system would be so shaming for my children and myself that we can't, we, we lack the capacities to, to, to choose alternative lives. So it's a scarcity trap where our anxieties about scarcity cause us to overcommit and pursue and perform and to spend. So why are those guys not cooking pancakes on Saturday morning with their kids, but they're working, right? Right, because they, they got to win. And so the neurotic anxiety of needing to win creates the exhaustion, and that's the trap. Um, and so I, I, you know, remember I told you it was going to depress you right before lunch. You know, I'll look at my students. I'll say, here's what I'm worried about for you students. Is that your, the cultural hero system of America is going to get a hold of you. They're going to grab a hold of your anxiety, your insecurity. It's going to get, it's going to get its fingers into that. And then it's going to leverage your neurosis against your family, your church, your physical health. Because I don't want to throw employers under the bus, but like your institution, it doesn't care, right? It'll, it'll grab a hold of your anxiety and it'll use that to cause you to perform for them you know, until, you know, it's the next downsizing, you know. Like, suddenly, I was the most valued. Thank you. I was employee of the month three times, you know, until the recession hit. And suddenly, all of that, all the blue ribbons of employee of the month seemed to be meaningless again. And I said, and to be clear, you got to work, and you should work for the Lord. But that's kind of a key to the transition afternoon, right? You're not working for the hero system. You're not working to achieve some degree of significance. You're working in in a kind of different kind of way. What makes you matter in your work is different from collecting the blue ribbons of your employer. I say because the American capitalistic system is going to get a hold of your neurosis and your insecurity, and it will use that, and it will wring you out like a sponge until you are broken, until your family's broken because you work so much. Your kids never saw you at the football game, you know, or you're trying to balance, as a woman, domestic stuff and work stuff, and you just feel horrible all the time, and it's manifesting as your depression, right? It's just going to wring you out and break you, and that's my fear for you graduates, Unless you go out there with another way of doing this identity thing and you just kind of naively and unconsciously just step into the hero system and get plugged in 
your sense of self-esteem will be the leverage in which the world will chew you up. Um, oh, did that go off? No, it's still up there. Um, and so, uh, um, this is my last slide before. Happy days, right? You guys, so I told you, don't leave. You're like, I'm sad. So, identity and age of anxiety. It seems to me that self-esteem is a bit of a trap for all the reasons I said today. Um, and it looks lots of different ways, as we've talked about. It's a source of a lot of our emotional and social anxieties. And so what I would like to talk about after the break is like, okay, then, then what? What do we do? How do we go? And I'm going to start, I'm going to start with some psychology, and then I'm going to end with some gospel. Um, uh, so if you're kind of like, is this all psychology? No. We're gonna, we'll get to some our spirituality and our faith here after lunch. So you got to come back, or you're going to be really depressed. Okay, so there's hope for us on the far side of lunch, but lunch will cheer us up. Okay, is all right. So I think we're gonna. I'm gonna stop right here. And so, Warren, do you wanna come up and kind of pray or give announcements?